Curtis Flowers lived in the small town of Winona, Mississippi, and began a job at Tardy Furniture. But while transporting some car batteries, two of them fell off his truck, and store owner Bertha Tardy said that the damages might have to come out of his paycheck. After a full day of work, Curtis decided to cut his losses and move on. On the morning of July 16, 1996, the bodies of Bertha Tardy and three employees were found shot. One was still alive, rushed to the hospital, but later pronounced dead. After hearing about the allegedly disgruntled Curtis Flowers, police used a toxic mix of a cash reward and intimidation to extract witness statements widely varying in detail. They pieced together a ridiculous narrative of Curtis's whereabouts, including a dubious story about a gun that his uncle had reported missing. With this flimsy motive and even flimsier evidence, along with racially discriminatory jury selection, Curtis Flowers was first tried and convicted of Bertha Tardy's murder. While that conviction was being thrown out, he was convicted for the murder of one of the other employees. And when the second conviction was thrown out, they tried him again for all four murders. After six trials and a trip to the Supreme Court, this farce would finally come to an end when American public media made a podcast called In the Dark, shining a bright light on Curtis's case and the racist district attorney driving it. After 23 long years on death row and another trip to the Supreme Court, District Attorney Doug Evans finally stepped off the case. Upon review, the Attorney General of Mississippi dropped all charges. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. And I'm going to throw a few numbers at you before I introduce our guest. So Curtis Flowers was wrongfully convicted six times, spent 23 years on death row for four murders that he didn't commit. Curtis Flowers, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Good to be here. So let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in a small town in Mississippi, right? Yes. Uh, One only is about... 84 miles north of Jackson, Mississippi. It's a small town, about a population of 5,000, over 45% black. Did you have a happy childhood? Yes, I did. Brothers, sisters? Brothers, I have four sisters, one brother. I'm the, I guess you would call the middle child. So everything was pretty much fine, I guess, up yeah. until what, what seemed like a very minor incident at a store that you only worked at for a few days. I'm talking yes. about tardy furniture, which should have come and went and never been a subject of even one little minor discussion. True. But nonetheless, since it was the incident that started this crazy chain of events going, can you just tell us what happened at tardy furniture? Well, I went to work at Tardy's uh, one morning and, uh, she asked me to pull around back so uh, the, the business next door could load some batteries onto the truck. And leaving, I pulled off and two of the batteries slid off the truck. When I got back to the store, I told her about them. She said, well, take them back around there and let me see if they can replace them. Because if they can't, then you'll have to pay for them because you should have tied them down. And I said, okay. So I took them back. Mr. Uh, Jimmy Sanders, who worked there, told me that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll work it out. So I went back and told her everything was good. You know, she sent me on to deliver furniture all that day. You know, by me just starting, you know, she even advanced me. I think it was $30. You didn't go back to work at the store after that? But no, I didn't. Well, it's okay, fine, whatever. And uh, later it became a motive. Right, like this little minor <laughs> incident was going to cause you to go yes. back and shoot four people in the head. So now, unbeknownst to you, a terrible, terrible thing happens, right, at Tardy Furniture. On the morning of July 16th, 1996, Sam Jones Jr., a retired employee of Tardy Furniture Company, reported that the owner, Bertha Tardy, who was 59, had called him at 9 a.m. asking him to come into the store to train a couple of new employees, a guy named Derek Bobo Stewart, who's 16, and Robert Golden, a 42-year-old man. Jones arrived an hour later and found a horror scene. He found that Tardy, Stewart, Golden, and another employee named Carmen Rigby, a 45-year-old woman, had all been shot and killed. Uh, well, one of them, 16-year-old Mr. Stewart, was the only one still alive, but he died in the hospital a few days later. And supposedly $287 was missing from the cash register. That gives me the chills because it's just what's the price of a life. May they rest in peace. So it's just this crazy coincidence, the smallest town like that, you know, the place that you happen to previously work. And even the fact that you worked there at one time really shouldn't have set off too many alarm bells. Maybe somebody would have quickly looked into it and ruled you out. Exactly. But this wasn't just anybody, right? What we're talking about is you ran into the crosshairs of District Attorney Doug Evans. Yes. And they covered this in this fantastic podcast, which I'm sure some of our listeners have heard called In the Dark, thought it was brilliantly done. Let me just say that. One of the things that jumps out to me from the podcast about Doug Evans was that an analysis by APM for the podcast discovered that Evans and his assistant DAs over the course of 26 years 
struck black prospective jurors at nearly four and a half times the rate they struck white ones. And of course, we know that's one of the main reasons why your conviction kept getting overturned, because he kept excluding black jurors from the juries, which is, of course, a violation of the 14th Amendment. This is a guy who was elected again in November 2019, so he's been in there forever, still the DA, but numerous civil rights lawsuits have been filed against him. But according to the Mississippi Bar Association, it's hard to believe he's received no public sanction and remains a lawyer in good standing. So let's let's go back. Let's go back. Hold on. So the crime took place on July 16th, 1996. When did you even hear about it? Uh, the same day. Uh, they come by the house, wanted to know if they could talk with me. They said they heard that I used to work there and maybe I could help them, you know. Maybe I seen something and don't realize I, I saw it. And uh, I said, oh, sure. I went down with them and talked. You know, every time I left, you know, uh, uh, what we talk about here today, don't don't tell anyone else. And we just want you to know you're not a suspect. We just we just thought maybe you could help, you know. So I said, okay. But everyone on the street was telling me that when they talked with them, they said I was a suspect. They tested your hands for gunshot residue. Tested right? my hands for gunshot residue. The morning they picked me up, wanted to question me. They wanted to rule me out. So he said. And uh, yeah, I agreed they to. They want to rule you in, actually. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I agreed to a gunshot residue test, and they gave it to me. And, and later, they come back and said that there was, I think, one particle of gunshot residue. You know, I don't know anything about residue, but my lawyer argued that there are three elements to gunshot residue. You can't have one without the other two. And and he asked them, "Well, how did Mr. Flower get to the police station?" And I got down there with a state trooper. He said, isn't it true they fry their weapons every morning? And and Mr. Flowers shook hands with him, so he could have picked up that particle just like that. Or it could have come from a firework. No, and we have a whole episode of our show, Wrongful Conviction Junk yes. Science, devoted to the gunshot residue issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are literally dozens of substances that could, you know, sort of fool the test, you yes. know, and that it all has to be independently corroborated or else it's just junk science. Yes, and I... I even heard that you could get that from just just messing with a, a car battery. Car battery, cigarette ash, dried urine. Yes. Or officer giving you a gunshot residue test and he don't have on gloves. Right. And he's handling your hands while he's doing it. Sure. Know? It's transferable. Yeah. True. So that's the flimsiest of flimsy evidence that you could have. Exactly. Not evidence. <laughs> evidence is a wrong word. but They call it evidence. <laughs> I call it bullshit. Okay. So your prints were not found at the crime scene. And your clothes... They took your clothes, right? Took my clothes. Clothes went to the crime lab and turned up nothing. Nothing. Right. So, are you a ghost? (laughs) You don't seem like (laughs) a ghost. Not a ghost. Okay. So, (laughs) at that point, maybe reasonable people could agree that they could have started looking for the actual perpetrator. But they continued on. Now, at the scene, three footprints from size 10 and a half Fila gym shoes were later discovered. And don't even get me started on footprint analysis because yes. that's a whole other junk science. And there was no paper money, only change in the cash register. Again, supposedly $287 was missing. Police found five shell casings at the scene, which were from a three eighty caliber semi-automatic pistol. They also found two spent bullets, two bullet fragments, and one live bullet. Now, have you ever owned a three eighty caliber semi-automatic pistol? No. Okay, so now enter Doyle Simpson. Doyle Simpson was your uncle. He reported that a pistol of this same type and caliber had been stolen from his car in the parking lot of the Angelica Garment Factory where he worked. So he now came 
under suspicion. Yes. On July 22nd, 1996, Simpson took a polygraph test that revealed deception when he said that his gun had been stolen from his car and when he said he knew nothing about the murders. Again, we know polygraphs are not super accurate, but they can give you some indication. Yes. But we should not take a polygraph as just gospel because it's yes. not. But according to the polygraph and the polygrapher, he lied about where he got the gun and police later discovered that he called his brother asking him to lie to the police as well, telling them that he had sold the gun to Simpson, but the brother refused. It was later found out that he did lie about his whereabouts that morning of those murders. Doyle claimed he was at work all morning. His own sister said she saw his car way out on 82. She saw him drive by that morning. Well, I can think of a couple of reasons why that could be. One would be that he wanted to deflect suspicion away from him because he was actually guilty, or the other would be that he just was trying to, like, not be any part of this and so was making up a story that he was at work just to try to throw the police off, even looking further into him. And that was my first thought. So Simpson went on to tell the cops that he practiced shooting this gun in a rural spot, but a detective went to that location and pulled a spent plug from a post, and according to the firearms expert for the Michigan State Police, David Balish testified that he determined that the bullet from the post actually did have markings similar to the bullets recovered from the crime scene. In August of 96, detectives led by the DA investigator John Johnson questioned Mr. Simpson about their findings, but again, he denied his involvement and maintained that the gun had been stolen from the car that morning. So, despite the fact that there are like flashing arrows now pointing towards Simpson, right? Yes. They continued to focus on you, and now they discovered a box of size 10 and a half Bela shoes at your girlfriend Connie's house. I later found out that my uh, girlfriend at the time, Connie, had bought her son, Marcus, a pair of Bela shoes, size 10 and a half. And then that's how they led up to me wearing a pair of 10 and a half Bela. Do you wear a size 10 and a half Bela shoe? Most shoes I wear 11 and a half dress shoe. But in gym shoes, I can't wear 11. Right. Well, anybody who's ever worn a shoe that's a half to a full size too small can report that it's not very <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> so I think it's unlikely that those were your uh, shoes under any circumstances. And I'm going to say, too, that feelers were pretty uh, stylish back in the late 90s. Yes, they were. Okay. So most of the people who were questioned later on reported, and this will surprise exactly no one, they reported that they were afraid of being arrested themselves unless they cooperated with the police. And some said that rewards of up to $30,000 were dangled in front of them if they agreed to cooperate. So they were using the carrot and the stick. So they eventually, not surprisingly, got statements from a dozen different witnesses who said they saw you in various locations in and around Winona on the morning of the crime. And based on these statements, which were almost certainly fabricated and coerced and rewarded, right? When they put the $30,000 reward out, people that didn't even know me knew me then. And everybody saw me here and there. I'd have to be Superman to be in all those places around the same time and dress differently. Right. Each each witness described me wearing something different. But based on all these 
crazy statements that they had to try to piece together. And I've seen the map that shows your movements on that morning. Like, I think I saw it on 60 Minutes or something. It's, yes. like, it's, ridic- <laughs> it's so ridiculous. You were zigzagging all over town, according to all these people. All over town. In all different clothes. So, they developed this crazy theory that motivated by the anger of this loss of this fantastic tardy furniture delivery job that you had. Yes. That you had walked all over town, stole Simpson's gun, walked home, walked back across town, shot and killed the four victims, robbed the cash register, and then just tootled your way back home. Tootled my way back home. Not a care in the world. Not a care in the world. Right. Now we have to fast forward all the way to January 13th, 1997, Plano, Texas. So you moved to Plano, Texas, right? Yes. With your girlfriend, Ms. Connie Moore. What happened? At that time, I was working from 3 to 11, and... I got up to fix myself some lunch. There was a knock at the door. And right before I grabbed the door, I saw movement, you know, off the patio door. And, you know, that's what they call runners, you know, who just in case you run, you know, they got guys set up to chase you. So I opened the door and uh, he said, uh, how you doing? I said, I'm doing okay. How are you, sir? And uh, he said, I'm looking for uh, Curtis Flowers. I said, that would be me. And before I could say anything else, I was all up against the wall. I'm talking about sheetrock mood upside my forehead, being cuffed. And I said, may I ask, why am I being arrested? He said, well, we have a warrant for your arrest back in Mississippi for four counts of capital murder. This episode is underwritten by Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, a leading international law firm. Paul Weiss has long had an unwavering commitment to providing impactful pro bono legal assistance to the most vulnerable members of our society and in support of the public interest, including extensive work in the criminal justice area. They took me back to uh, Mississippi, where I was put in jail in LaFleur County, and that's where I sat until I went to trial in October of 97. So you get charged with four counts of capital murder. Let's go to trial number one. Hard to believe that you had six damn trials. I mean, that's not a record that I think you ever wanted to hold or set. No, it's not. (laughs) No way. (laughs) So the first trial, they only tried you for one of the murders, Bertha Tardy. I know your attorney had tried to combine them, right, into one case, but the, of course that was denied. Everything he tried was denied pretty denied. much. Right? So the trial was moved to Lee County, and the jury was, get ready. All white. Now, from what I understand, it was moved to Lee County because of extensive media coverage. Is that your understanding? That's what I hear, and then they claimed that I couldn't get a fair trial in my own hometown. Keep in mind, that one owner is 45% black. What about Lee? I I don't know the population there, but the blacks that were there, they didn't get on the jury. So it's Doug and his trial tactics, you know? Right, and those are called peremptory challenges, right? Which is the technical term for a defendant's or lawyer's objection to a proposed juror, which is made without needing to give a reason. But it is illegal to exclude jurors because of their race. Yes. So they had plenty of black jurors to choose from. They just didn't choose... To put any of them on your jury. Exactly. So now, magically, the prosecution had found two more witnesses. And we hear this again and again, right, on this show. These are incentivized jailhouse niches, Frederick Veal and Maurice Hawkins. And they both testified that you were their cellmate, 
while you were awaiting trial and that you admitted to committing the crime. So jailhouse snitches, they are the most unreliable witnesses of all because they're all incentivized. And sometimes they lie about being incentivized while they're lying about overhearing these magical confessions, right? So both of these two guys later recanted. We're just going to speculate that they may have gotten whatever they were going to get. They got reduced sentences. They got rewarded in some way. So now we get to Patricia Hallman, who was a neighbor of yours. And she testified that on the morning of the crime around 7.30 a.m., she saw you going into your house in a rage. I can just picture her making up this story. Okay. (laughs) And other witnesses testified to seeing you at various times that morning, including Catherine Snow who claimed that she saw you leaning against a car outside the factory where Simpson worked. Clemmy Fleming testified that she got a ride home from Roy Harris to go make a payment at Tardy Furniture, but she said she didn't go in because she was pregnant and feeling sick, so Harris drove her home. Now, why does that matter? Because she said she saw you running away from the store, and Harris said he also saw someone running, but only thought it was you because Fleming said so. This, This web is getting... Deeper and deeper. (laughs) So now comes Jack Matthews, an investigator for the Mississippi Highway State Patrol, who testified that based on a ledger sheet at Tardy Furniture, $287 was missing from the cash drawer. Now, they then came up with a theory that $255 that was found in Connie's home, your girlfriend, was the same money that was missing from the furniture store. Amazing, because no one else had $200 in their house. (laughs) It must have been the same $200. And I thought that was so crazy. Is she not allowed to save money? I mean, I imagine most people in town had a little bit of cash in their house. Like, they could have said anything. I agree. Could have been $20. Oh, here's the 20 from the store. What do you know? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I'm glad you could laugh about it because I'm about to cry. A forensic. <laughs> Sometimes you have to laugh to keep them crying. <laughs> okay, well, so then there was a forensic analyst who conducted the gunshot residue test on your hands, which magically produced one particle, who testified that the residue certainly had to be from handling a gun and not anything else. So this is a guy who didn't know what the fuck he was talking about, because we know that that's not true. True. Then Balish testified, remember him from before, 100% positive that the bullets recovered from the scene had been fired from Simpson's gun. But when testified about the 10 and a half size Fila box found in her home, your girlfriend told the story that you had said, right? That yes. she had purchased for her son in November of 95 and that her son took them when he moved to his father's in 96. They could have verified that if they cared. Exactly. You testified that you had started working at Tardy in early July 96. What was your testimony with the batteries about? Like I told them, she sent me around to, I think it was a Tesco at the time, who sold her the batteries. Now, my job was to just pick the batteries up and take them out to the country club, and they were going to put them on the golf carts. But, you know, pulling off from a Tesco, two of the batteries slid out and hit the pavement, and, and one was leaking. The other one, there was nothing wrong with the battery other than, you know, the edges got danged up on the concrete. And uh, she said, well, just take them back around there and uh, I'm going to call and see if they give me some type of deal on them or replace them. If they can't, then you dare to have to come out of your pay. I said, I have no problem with that because you're right. I was supposed to tie them down. Hmm. No offense, but that's a boring ass story. I mean, yes, just- it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. And. It wasn't the only boring part of your day, because on the day of the crime, you also testified about getting up at nine, cooking a little breakfast, yeah. your hand on a can of shortening, yes. went to sister's house to get some bandages, and convenience store to buy some beer and chips. It really sounds like a very average, average day. Average day. 
And you told them that you hadn't committed the crime, that you hadn't stolen the gun, and that you hadn't been running near the store at 10 a.m. True. You also told them, which was, again, easily verifiable, that you wore size 11 Nike shoes and that you shot off fireworks the day before the murders and handled the lead car battery I working on the truck, which, you know, you're not yes. a scientist, but even you could figure out that these exactly. things could cause this, you know, confusion to the, the testing. Right? Yes. Well, I later found that out. You know, I'm just being honest about what I did. And what about alibi witnesses? Do you have any alibi witnesses at the first trial? Only the kids. And, and they, they ruled that they didn't want to bring the kids in it because they were so young, you know, and, and, and dramatize them or anything like that. But there was a, a few people who knew my whereabouts. My cousin even come by the house and told me what was going on. He said, when I first heard it, I, all I thought about was you. I thought you had got killed down there. So I came over here to check on you. And then the jury deliberated for one whole hour. One whole hour. One hour. Can't imagine what that conversation was like. The all-white jury convicted you in an hour, and later that day, they went ahead and imposed the death penalty. Oh, man, my, my world was turned upside down. Put it in this hole, and parchment is... I cannot describe parchment to you. If, if you didn't have someone on the outside who love and support you, it was hard to maintain in there. Them guys just taking sheets and taking their own lives. Man, I, I've experienced that a lot while I was there. It, it, it's, it's a bad place. I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT&T.com slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. So, between trial one and two of the jailhouse snitch, Mr. Veal recanted his testimony, saying that he had been coerced by the prosecution and promised a piece of the reward. But Hawkins stood by his testimony, but when your attorney confronted him with a transcript of an interview he had done, during which he never talked about you, in the transcript he said that he testified, quote, to protect myself from doing time and getting killed, end quote. In exchange for his testimony, very important, Hawkins's cocaine charge was dropped and he got house arrest for burglary. I'm going to guess that Mr. Hawkins was a black man. Yes, he is. Do they typically give black men house arrest for burglary in Mississippi? No, they do not. No, I knew the answer to that question. <laughs> I just wanted to hear you say it. Okay, so while the first conviction was being appealed, a second trial occurred. And it was moved to Harrison County. And the second trial was for the murder of Derek Bobo Stewart. This time, the jury was made up of 11 white jurors and one black juror. So they managed to get one on there this time. But that didn't help either. But in this trial... Roy Harris, the guy who allegedly took Connie Fleming, remember her, by the Tardy's Furniture Store. Yes. He testified again, but this time he said that he saw a man running in downtown Winona at 9 a.m. instead of 10 a.m. And that Ms. Fleming was not with him, which was a totally different story than he had told the first time. Yes, well. So he was trying to have trouble remembering his own lies. So he said that an hour <laughs> later, it is hard when you lie <laughs> to remember them sometimes. So... He said that an hour later, around 10, Fleming had asked him to take her to Tardy Furniture, but she changed her mind. They turned around before even arriving. Another change. So nothing was consistent. So Clemmy Fleming's cousins, Latarsha Blissett and Stacy Wright, both testified that Fleming admitted to them that she had not seen you running from the store. Fleming's sister, Mariella, also testified, saying that Fleming came to her house on the morning of the murders and a friend stopped over to tell them that Bertha Tardy had been killed. Mariella testified that she and Fleming went to Tardy Furniture, but that Fleming never mentioned seeing you that morning. There's so many holes in this. It's like Swiss cheese. It's crazy. <laughs> a few pieces. Defense also called, your defense called Odell Hallman Jr., who was the brother of Patricia Hallman, who testified in the first trial. And Odell, Mr. Hallman Jr., who was in prison on a probation violation for aggravated assault, testified that Patricia was lying doing so at his suggestion in an attempt to cash in on the reward. The pieces are just falling off this puzzle. You know? Yes, they are. Nonetheless... You were convicted again on March 30th, 1999, convicted of capital murder and got death penalty again. So now we get to the reversals. In December of 2000, the Mississippi Supreme Court reversed your first conviction and ordered a new trial. Now, no mention was made of the racially biased jury selection, which is odd. But they did hold that your trial was unfair because the prosecution presented evidence of all four murders when you were only being tried for the murder of Miss Tardy. This led to the jury's exposure to inflammatory and prejudicial evidence. Sure, they thought you were like a mass killer, right? They're they, probably, they were probably scared of you. Yes. The court also noted that Evans's cross-examination included questions that had no basis in fact and that were in poor faith. Evans also presented information that was never in evidence. Now, for the Mississippi Supreme Court to say it's pretty strong. 
So in April 2003 now, the Mississippi Supreme Court also reversed your conviction for Mr. Stewart's murder. The court found the same issues in the first trial, naturally, because it was the same prosecutor doing the same dirty tricks, emphasizing that your right to a fair trial was impossible due to the prosecution, including evidence from the other murders. But still, they didn't mention the racially biased jury selection, which would seem to be the most obvious thing of all. But at least they got it right for the... well. They didn't get all the reasons, but they got it right for one of the reasons or two of the reasons, whatever it is. <laughs> but due to these two reversals, the prosecution now decided they would do what your defense lawyer had asked for all those years ago, which was to consolidate the four cases. So trial three, February 2004, now you're being tried for all four murders. This trial was held. Was held <laughs> this was held in Montgomery County. Now, why, does it, why are we laughing? Because that's right that's, where it started. They moved it out of one owner, then they brought it back to one owner. Hmm. Well, so now all of a sudden it's okay to try you back in Winona. Okay. During jury selection, the prosecution used seven of their challenges to get rid of black jurors. The defense objected correctly, contending that it was racially motivated. Could have been a coincidence, but sure don't seem like <laughs> it. The prosecution then used its remaining five peremptory challenges on black people as well. The jury was ultimately composed, you guessed it. 11 white jurors and one black juror. Yes. And the one black person that managed to get on this jury was only selected because, again, I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence because you're going to know this before I say it, but it's because they ran out of peremptory challenges. The prosecution couldn't get rid of the last black person. So yes. that person was, um, was put on the jury and the court ruled that this was not racially discriminatory, that they just happened to use all 12 of their challenges to get rid of black people. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy coincidence, though. Say And this trial was similar to the first two, but this time, Mr. Hallman Jr., remember Odell Hallman Jr., testified for the prosecution. He said that while he was in prison, you confessed to him that you committed the murders, and it wasn't until much later that we found out what his little deal was, right? Yes. And it's crazy, right? Because everybody that watches TV knows you can't bribe a witness, right? You go to jail for that shit. Yes, you do. But they don't. They can bribe all the witnesses they want. All they want. And they got better bribes than anybody on the outside could possibly have. I don't care if you go to somebody and say, I give you a million dollars, testify the way I want you to. They can say, I'll let you out of prison. Exactly. And in his case, that's what happened. Oh, boy. Okay. So, February 2004... The jury convicted you of all four counts of capital murder and you're sentenced to death again. It's hard to believe you're sitting here as many times as you've been sentenced to death. You're, <laughs> you strike me as easy to love and hard to kill, but that's just me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, three years later on February 1st, 2007, here goes again. The Mississippi Supreme Court reversed the convictions again and ordered a new trial. The court found that prosecution was racially discriminatory in jury selection this time, noting that the case was, and I quote, as strong as a prima facie case of racial discrimination as we have ever seen. That's powerful yes. in Mississippi or anywhere, but that's crazy. So, okay, now they try you again. Call me kooky, but I don't think the same prosecutor should be allowed to just keep trying the same person over True. and over again. I think that might be something we want to take a look at. But I this, agree. This time the jury consisted of seven white and five black jurors. They gave me a little hope there. December 5th, 2007, a mistrial was declared as the jury could not reach a verdict. And get ready for another shocker. Surprise ending. Seven white members of the jury voted to convict, and the five black members voted to acquit. Yes. I don't even have the right words for that. So here comes trial number five, September 2008. This time, the jury was made up 
of nine white and three black members. The jury ended up in another mistrial, this time voting 11 to 1 to convict. The one dissenting person was a black person. And comes trial number six in summer of 2010. And this time the jury was composed of 11 white and one black member. And they found you guilty on all four counts of capital murder again on June 18th of 2010 and sentenced you to death again. And now we get to the post, post, post. Post, post, post. Took me a long time just to say that, and you had to live it. It's conviction litigation. So you were represented now by Keir Weeble and Sherry Lynn Johnson from the Cornell Law School Death Penalty Clinic, and they appealed your conviction. And in 2014, the Mississippi Supreme Court upheld the convictions and death sentences. The team sought review in the U.S. Supreme Court, and in 2016... They ordered the Mississippi Supreme Court to review the possibly racially discriminatory jury selection. And in November 2017, it was ruled, I'm getting the chills again, it was ruled by a five to four vote that there was no discrimination. True. Um, The most polite way I can think of to say this is what the fuck are they talking about? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no discrimination. Well, I think I think I did say it that way without for her that you know it, it, it's, it's sad. It really is. But your team appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court again, and uh, this is when American Public Media (APM) started their investigation, and they did as we talked about the podcast in the dark. And this podcast began in May 2018, and it was a big hit. A big, big hit. Big hit. And the things they uncovered are shocking. Fleming now said her testimonies in all of the trial were lies. She confessed that, quote, the whole, this is her quote, the whole time I've been telling them I don't remember the day. The whole time I've been telling them I don't remember the day. I've been confused of the day from the beginning. I just didn't know how to say it. I was scared I was going to jail. Wow. Okay. Odell Hallman also recanting, saying that everything was all make-believe on his part. And he also said that Evans dropped the drug charges pending against him and um, offered him other legal assistance. Roy Harris, who was the friend and driver of Clemmie Fleming, told the podcast that police had showed him a photo of you. And Harris said that the man he saw running away was not you. Exactly. Eventually, he thought he was going to get arrested if he didn't say it was you, so he did. Edward McChristian also recanted his testimony that he was sitting on the porch at 7.30 to 8 a.m. when you supposedly, allegedly walked past his house from your uncle Doyle Simpson's workplace, the garment factory, where the testimony had tied you to the alleged stolen gun. Yeah. So all those lies are now unraveling. So in June 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed your convictions and death sentences by a vote of seven to two. Seven to two. That's amazing. It ruled that the prosecution had engaged in racially discriminatory jury selection because they had struck 41 of the 42 black prospective jurors in the six trials combined. Wow. So Sherry Lynn Johnson had made the argument that led to the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to reverse. She argued that your case should be dismissed and not brought to a seventh trial should be obvious to anybody. As you had already spent over 20 years now on death row, 
and that the evidence against you was basically had vanished. It was non-existent. Yes. It never had existed. But now, <laughs> true. now that is it true. was proven that it had never existed. Yes. Right? The Washington, D.C. law firm of Hogan Lovells, as well as the friend of the show, the director of the Mississippi Innocence Project, Tucker Carrington, the Mississippi Office of Post-Conviction Counsel got involved, as well as attorneys Rob McDuff, we know him, and Henderson Hill. They all began preparing for a possible retrial. Now you had the dream team. Dream team. Avengers. Yes. And on December 16, 2019, you were finally released to home confinement to wait for your seventh trial. This had been almost 23 years in prison, right? Right at 23. What do you remember about that day? I was nervous, you know. You know, I'd have been so close to home out of all the years and never made it, you know. And at that time, I was like, I don't see them giving me bail. Letting me go home, you know, until they decide what they want to do, whether they want to have a seven trial or not. But we got in the courtroom, you know, and Doug Epson didn't even show up that day. He sent his assistant, Judge Loper, talking. He got started in about Doug Evans, the DA not showing up. You know, I would expect him to be here, you know, and the, and the more he talked, the better I felt. The more he talked about Doug. And, and, and he said, you know, at this time, you know, I am going to grant bail. Where'd you go in Texas? Back to Plano? Plano. Mm-hmm. To your sisters? Yes. What was your first meal when you got out? Oh, man. So I had fried fish, catfish, a hush puppy, french fries, coleslaw. And he, he was a funny thing, too, because we were in the restroom, me and my brother-in-law. It has been like seven or eight other guys. So I'm standing at the urinal and, you know, relieving myself. So... I get through, uh, I'm looking for the handle. And everybody was saying, just just walk away. I said, no, that's rude. You don't leak in a urinal and just walk away. I said, later on, that can start smelling, you know. Everybody, hey, just walk away. I stepped back, it flushed itself. And I had to walk back up to it and look at it, you know. And, and one of the guys in there, a white guy, he said, I don't know where you been, but you've been gone for a long time. I said, yes, I have. And I'm washing my hands. And as my brother-in-law walked back through the restaurant, dry my hands and everything, people were just stopping me. It's going to be okay. And I guess they went back out and told their wives and everything about what happened in the bathroom, you know. And people were just telling me, it's going to be okay. Yes, I mean, and, and it was funny and, and emotional at the same time. On December 16th, 2019, you were released to home confinement, waiting for the seventh trial like we talked about. Seventh trial. And... Then, in January 2020, Evans stepped off the case and the Attorney General's office began reviewing it. So, And sure enough, on September 4th, 2020, Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch announced that the charges were going to be dismissed. And you stated, now I'm going to quote you even though you're sitting right here in front of me. Today, I am finally free from the injustice that left me locked in a box for 23 years. 23 years. Oh, I felt like doing flips. And, you know, big guy like me shouldn't be doing flips. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a happiness I can't even describe to hear Judge Loper say, you know, I dismissed this case with prejudice. Hmm. And, I said, and, you know, I, and at the time, the words didn't even ring on me. And uh, someone told me, he said, when he said with prejudice, that means that they can never try you again. Yeah, that's beautiful. And it's funny because prejudice is usually a bad word. Yes, this is, is the only instance I can think of when it's a good word. Yes. So in the meantime, it's great to see you out here living your best life, married, 
you know, traveling. What can our listeners do to show support? I do have a GoFundMe out there. So, yes, we'll have it linked in the bio. So now, Mr. Flowers, we have a segment of our show that I love the most, which is called Closing Arguments. It works like this. First of all, I again thank you for just being you and and being here in the studio with me. Yes. And then I turn my microphone off, kick back in my chair, and sometimes I close my eyes and just listen to anything else you have to say. It's called Closing Arguments, and you have the mic, and you can just talk about anything you think you want to share. Well, I I would first like to thank you all for having me, uh, and I think you're awesome, guy. I I really do, And, and look forward to hanging out with you. To all the listeners, uh, I ask that we strive for change, you know, and, and make this a better place. Uh, I think we all should get along and love one another uh, and not hate for no reason at all, you know. Uh, I'm a laid-back guy. I'm, I'm easy to get along with. Uh I, I would like to send a shout-out to all the victims, family. And, and I hope one day soon that they find the real guy. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Please support your local Innocence Projects and go to the link in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Warnis. The music on the show, as always, is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.